Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Welcome to today's episode, and I'm so glad you joined us. For the last several weeks, 11 to be accurate, we've discussed the subject of faith. I've heard from several of you, and I'm hearing the same thing. You're telling me how much this series on faith has really helped you. Many have said to me that this series has answered many questions they've had for years about faith. Well, I'm grateful to the Lord for this. He is so good to us. Today, I have two questions I want to consider with you. First, if God has spoken to us, and since God cannot lie, then can you believe him for what he has said? And of course, everyone's going to say, yes, I can believe him. Well, tell me, what are you believing God for today that if he doesn't come through for you, you will fail? I asked the same question in episode 16. You might want to go back and listen to that episode. I'm not asking if you trust God to get you safely to heaven. No, I'm talking about something specific in your life today. If you're not trusting God for something specific, then how can you say you're living by faith? And if you can point to something in your life that you are trusting God, that you could not have unless he comes through and answers, I want to ask you a second question. How do you know you're trusting God? Peter is an example of a man who claimed to trust God but failed. He would have readily answered my question with a resounding, yes, I trust in the Lord explicitly. I've left my profession and I've staked all on Jesus being the Messiah, I definitely believe in him. But something broke down in Peter's heart that night Jesus was betrayed. He had promised the Lord Jesus just hours earlier that he would never deny him, but when asked three times if he knew this Jesus that was on trial, he lied and denied knowing him all three times. So, How do you know you're really exercising faith in God? I'm not asking you if you merely believe that God is trustworthy, but are you trusting Him with something that affects you? In our previous two episodes, we detailed the account of Abraham's fight of faith. God stated to Abraham that Sarah, at the age of 90, was going to have a baby. Abraham and Sarah would become the proud parents of a baby boy who would be the one to carry on the lineage of Abraham and the promise of the future Messiah. Well, Abraham at first struggled to believe, but thankfully he didn't stay there. Abraham fought the good fight of faith and persevered to a faith that was fully assured. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, the Apostle Paul gives us important insight into how one can know for sure they're trusting in the Lord. Paul says of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham grew in faith, and at some point, faith gave birth to worship for the thing Abraham trusted God. 
no doubt when that happened, Abraham went throughout his camp sharing what his heart believed God was going to give him. I, I think I can hear the aged Abraham saying, oh, we're going to have a baby. Praise the Lord. We're going to have a baby. You see, worship is the signal that the fight of faith has ceased and faith has won. Therefore, worship and praise to God for the thing born in your heart by faith is a sure evidence of faith. By faith, the heart possesses what you yet do not hold in your hand. It doesn't matter that you do not yet have the thing physically manifested because faith is the revelation of God's perspective on reality. And that's lodged in the heart as both the substance of the thing hoped for and the evidence of the thing not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Once again, we must carefully distinguish what we mean by the worship of God. Like my earlier question about having faith in God, many think they are worshipers of the Most High, but they're not sincere and active worshipers. It seems that Many within Christendom are bored with God and need some kind of emotional stimulus to come alive to the faith. Make them feel good, and in response to feeling good, they might lift their hands or they just might come back to the next week's local worship service, as if God has earned their attendance. Boredom with God is antithetical to worship, and it's also a dangerous thing. The result of boredom with God is carelessness with God. Love for God becomes lukewarm, and the Lord's not honored as He deserves. A.W. Tozer said, I can safely say on the authority of all that's revealed in the Word of God that a man or woman on this earth who's bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. And so, again, I ask, what is worship? Well, first I would say, it is love to God with all your heart. The Bible says that our highest aim as the created is to glorify the Creator. Yet the Bible says that the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, think about this. Why does the Bible not say that the greatest commandment is to glorify the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? The word love is used rather than the word glorify to show us that glorifying God cannot be reduced to mere mechanical obedience, but it must involve the heart, the, the passions, the affections of your soul. Do you not remember that the Apostle Paul said that he could bestow his goods to feed the poor and even give his body to be burned as a sacrifice, but if he didn't do it because of love, it profited him nothing. Without love, you cannot glorify God. The rocks, the trees, birds, the beasts, mountains and oceans, and the sun and moon, yes, they all glorify God. That's true. But you and I are thinking, feeling creatures. There's absolutely no way that we can glorify the Lord without the soul's joy and happiness being involved. The most important thing you can do is to learn how to love God. 
I use the word learn not to mean it's an intellectual pursuit, nor do I suggest that we, his children, don't have love in our hearts for God already and that we somehow must create it. No, not at all. But loving God is something that has to be cultivated. You have to learn how to resist everything within and without you that works against loving God. And the biggest obstacle to loving God is our love for ourselves. This is the fiercest competitor to love for God. You and I are born with a natural propensity to love ourselves. In fact, we don't have to be taught to love ourselves. It comes quite naturally. We're able to do it without any training or discipline at all. Now listen carefully. It is no sin to love yourself. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The issue is, who is your chief love? Who is it that has the preeminence of your love? You see, because of self-love, you have to learn to love God. That doesn't mean that as a believer you don't love Him. It means that you have to learn how to deny yourself and the temptation to love yourself more than you do Christ. A perfect example is the way we learn to love our spouses. Both of you, you, your spouse, are weak and flawed individuals. You both have the same tendency to be selfish. If you both had the primary inclination to serve the other, well, then marriage would be easy. But as we all know, while we do have that motivation to serve our spouse, we also have a competing desire for our spouse to serve us. And you and I have to learn how to choose our mate over ourselves. The day I married my wife, yes, I loved her. But over the years, that love has been tested, and some days it failed. My competing love for myself overcame my love for my wife. And the same is true in our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what I mean when I say we have to learn to love Him. Those born from above, oh yes, they, they are highly motivated to love God, but they also have this native selfishness that wants to dominate. Your life's ambition is to love God. That's true of every Christian, and like any other person that you learn to love, the more you get to know Him, the more you will love Him. Second, Worship is to give God your best because God has become your best. You see, we worship what we treasure. Whatever is the source of your greater delights and joy, that's what you worship. You exalt to a position of adoration what you value the most. And let me add, we dare not limit worship to the gathering of saints. No, no. Your entire life is worship. What sacrifice are you giving the Lord in regards to your life? Could it be that your life is a challenge to the love of God for you? Could your lack of devotion to God beg the question, In what way have you, God, loved me? Is it possible that you're not overwhelmed with God's love for you and that you're not moved in your heart to love Him? Love for God ought to cost us. If there's no sacrifice in our love or no self-denial, then we offer lame and sickly worship, and it just cannot be regarded as love 
with all the soul, mind, and strength. But don't think because I use the word sacrifice or cost, I'm speaking of something austere, difficult, if not painful. No, you'd be wrong. I'm talking about a joyful sacrifice, a glad-hearted expenditure. True love, in its highest expression, involves joyful sacrifice. And so I ask, what are you gladly sacrificing in your life in response to God's love for you? It seems to me that a great deal of Christians don't look so different from many sinners I know. They look as miserable as a sinner would look if they were trying to do the same thing. There's no joy in their service to God. It's a sacrifice of obligation, a disbursement of duty. They feel they must do this, but the heart's not in it. Their little obedience is an expediency of self-preservation. Nevertheless, they must do this, otherwise they'll have to pay the consequences. So, it's a matter of a calculated choice, which is less costly in the long run. And my friend, that's not biblical sacrifice. Therefore, I'm not talking about that kind of sacrifice, doing something you have no pleasure in doing. No. I want to know, how does your life differ from the world when it comes to the things of pleasure, comfort, and ease? Are you as madly in love with money, success, possessions, health, comfort, entertainment, reputation, fame? Except for going to church on Sunday, could your unsaved neighbor see that you were different in your pursuits than he or her? Biblical worship is a delighted sacrifice, a sacrifice you're pleased to make. You're joyful to pay the price because you love the person for whom you suffered the loss. And if truth is told, it doesn't feel like suffering loss at all. No, it feels like gain. You don't feel it as a loss when you put out the cash to purchase a present that will make your lover's heart happy. And it's the same mentality of the Apostle Paul who said that his sacrifice for Christ was like giving up garbage for diamonds. He said, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Are you willing to respond to God's love by giving Him your reputation? Are you willing to be considered a fool for Jesus? Are you ready to respond to God's love by laying down your rights as Jesus did for you? He was right and you were wrong, but he's the one who died and not you. Are you now willing to do the same with your wife, your husband, your children, parents, friends, because you love Jesus Christ? Therefore, worship is about God and not us. He's to be exalted above his creation. By his creation, we worship because we found someone more valuable than ourselves. Our worship is to promote Him, not us. Worship born by faith always says, Oh, I want to give more. What I offer Him so little and so far beneath His worthiness. Worship is never something we focus on. Instead, our focus is God. 
If your focus is on your worship, then my friend, it isn't worship. Your life has been given to you for one reason, to glorify God. And you cannot glorify God without passion. Passion isn't always displayed by intense emotion. It isn't hyperactivity on caffeine. But it is a powerful conviction that motivates an intense devotion. And isn't that what love is? A powerful conviction of one's value that inspires intense devotion to that person? I think so. I believe the Bible says such. Suppose you heard a conversation between two husbands, and they were talking about their love for their wives. One said, oh, I love my wife. I get up and make her coffee in the morning. I'll bring her the newspaper, try to buy her flowers every week. And I give her a generous allowance to spend any way she wants. And every summer I take her on a cruise. Oh, yes, I love my wife. And as you listen, you want to crawl under a rock and hide somewhere because, well, you don't do those things for your wife. You're embarrassed until you hear the second husband who says, Oh, yes, I love my wife also. Let me tell you about her. Her smile lights up a room. In fact, the room changes when she comes into it. I don't know anyone who's so caring for others that she sacrifices herself. She never thinks about herself. She's always thinking about others, and she's so smart. She has a wisdom about her that lends itself to stability. She's the same all the time. She's not one thing today and tomorrow something else. And, and did I tell you she's so faithful and loyal? She's the picture of trustworthiness. Oh, yes, I love my wife. Now, which would you believe loved his wife the most? The one who did much for his wife or the one who is fascinated and enthralled with his wife that he just simply can't stop talking about her? Well, of course, we can say they both love their wives. But the one who's fascinated with his wife is the one who truly glorifies his wife the most. Why? Well, because he enjoys her. He's fascinated with her. He honors her for her own sake. And the first one, if he's not careful, will begin to glorify himself for how he loves his wife. You can have service and not love. But you cannot have love without fascination and worship. We often answer the question, do you love God with, oh, yes. And then we proceed to tell of what we do for him. But is it possible you do for God without any fascination and passion for him? If not careful, your worship will be a fascination about how you worship and not the one you worship. I think a case can be made that a good many churches have been seduced by the music employed and the atmosphere created more than they're carried away by the God they supposedly worship. And as a result, worship wars have been sparked about how best to demonstrate praise. But those are two words that should never have been coupled, worship and wars, and oh, how grieved God must be by so much of what we call worship today. Our English word worship comes from the old English combination of two words, worth and ship. The word ship meant either condition or character, skill or office. For example, your lordship. 
Together, the two words meant a condition of being worthy of honor and renown. The person who is worshipped is worthy either in his condition or character or in his position. They are worthy. And our love for God is to be fueled by God's worthiness. In other words, we love him for his own sake. He's worthy of that fascination. He is so amazingly awesome that we just can't stop talking about him. Now, what fuels this kind, this biblical kind of worship, which is the only kind of worship? Well, the fuel is hearing and believing God. Experiencing Him is the energy of worship. Therefore, we can say that God, God inspires worship. And sometimes He does not inspire a song. But a dirge, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord. The point of worship is that God is magnified in the heart to a greater degree because he's manifested to a greater degree. You see, to magnify God does not mean to make God larger, but to see more clearly the immensity of God. It's like looking through a telescope. The telescope magnifies the planet for you so that you can see it better, but the telescope doesn't make the planet larger, no. It's far more extensive than the telescope can make it. And worship simply is the result of seeing better our great God's vastness. Therefore, worship always happens when faith has had its work in our hearts and has overcome the fight against unbelief. The answer of faith always magnifies God like the telescope magnifies a celestial body. Faith's assurance fills the heart with the goodness of God, and the goodness of God always leads to a humble worship. Now, why add the adjective humble to the word worship? And the answer is simple. When you see more clearly the God who is good, it humbles you. You see yourself also more clearly. You know that you're unworthy of such love and mercy. The compassion of such a massive deity who we call Father puts you in your proper place. Nothing, nothing are you but the recipient of amazing grace. And it becomes obvious that God loves you and he's good to you, not because of your faith, but because he's just that kind of God who loves his children so very much. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those that ask him? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. Don't misunderstand and think I'm saying that worship is the same thing as gratitude. No, that's not what I'm saying. Gratitude is a form of worship, yes. But worship exceeds gratitude. Worship is the affection of the heart responding to beholding the glory of God. And that affection impacts the way we live in every facet of life. It's to be so fascinated with Christ that your world revolves around Him. No other illustration I know serves any better than the sun's gravitational pull. 
The sun is the largest body of mass in our solar system. It's so massively large that it exerts a gravitational force on everything within its system. How large is the sun? Well, about 1.3 million Earths could fit inside the sun. That's how large it is. And just like the Earth has a gravitational field, meaning anything within Earth's atmosphere is pulled towards the Earth, the sun has a gravitational pull also. And because it's so large, well, its gravitational pull is large also, commensurate with its size. And that's what keeps the Earth orbiting the sun. So even though the sun is 93 million miles away from the Earth, the sun is so large to exert that kind of force on the Earth and keep it in its orbit. If you can see just how large the love of God is and how great he is, well, then, my friend, you will worship. In fact, you don't have to see the entirety of that. You can't. But if you just simply get a glimpse of it, he's so great and enormous in his glory that he will keep you in his gravitational pull and your life will orbit him. And that is worship. It's to know and feel the gravity of his immensity so that all of you revolves around all of him. And faith is the means by which we come to know and feel the greatness of God, as it is written. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 6, we come to God because of faith. For faith sees God and sees him in his glory. The presence of God is mediated to us through faith and the revelation of God in Scripture. Many of us know many facts about God gained from our knowledge of Scripture, but that's not faith. No, faith is when that truth learned becomes real. There's a reality that impacts and shapes you and and it really does influence how you live. And so we can't please God without faith and we'll never come to God without it as well. It's this reality of God born in our hearts by faith that produces the worship of our holy God. And when faith has overcome all enemies, well, my friend, you will worship because God will loom larger than all opposition. And that's how you can know that you trust. In our next episode, we'll talk more about faith and our exercise of it. So please be back next week. We release a new podcast weekly every Tuesday, so you can subscribe to it through any major podcast platform. And if you would, please leave comments and rate the podcast. The higher the rating, the more visible the RTM podcast will be for others to find and to listen. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters, may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, 
demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.